Hello, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemary Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Community Voice, The Root, Blavity, Wichita News, AP News, and Ebony. Today, I'll begin with an article from The Community Voice titled, Watkins Becomes First Black Woman on International Space Station Crew by Community Voice Staff, April 29, 2022. A SpaceX capsule carrying four astronauts, including the first black woman to join the International Space Station crew, successfully docked with ISS Wednesday evening, kicking off a five-month mission. The mission, called Crew 4, marks a return of the crewed launches that SpaceX conducts in partnership with NASA after the company concluded the first all-private mission to the space station for wealthy-paying customers on Monday. On board is Jessica Watkins, the first black woman to join the space station crew for an extended stay. Though more than a dozen black Americans, including four black women, have traveled to space since Guion Bluford, G-U-I-O-N-B-L-U-F-O-R-D, became the first to do so in 1983, no black woman has had the opportunity to live and work in space for an extended period, as the ISS has enabled more than 200 astronauts to do since 2000. This is certainly an important milestone, I think both for our space agency and for the country, Watkins said during a press conference last month. I think it really is just a tribute to the legacy of the black women astronauts that have come before me as well as to the exciting future ahead. Watkins, aged 33, is from Lafayette, Colorado, and will serve as a mission specialist. This is her first mission into space. As a child, Watkins had always been inspired by iconic astronauts like Mae Jemison, the first black woman in space, and Sally Ride, the first American woman in space. She earned a bachelor's degree in geological and environmental sciences at Stanford University. There, she was a member of the rugby team. After Stanford, Watkins earned a Ph.D. in geology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Since 2017, Watkins has been an astronaut at NASA, where she worked in its research centers, particularly on the Mars rover Curiosity. Her mission next year will be her first mission in space. After the ISS, Watkins, who had a background in geology and the surface of Mars, said she is also interested in traveling to Mars soon. This article is titled, Watkins Becomes First Black Woman on International Space Station, written by the Community Voice Staff. April 29th, 2022. The next article is also from the Community Voice titled WSJ Analysis, 
Kansas City ranks in the top 10 best job markets. April 27, 2022. The Wall Street Journal and Moody's Analytics released results for their annual ranking of the cities with the best job markets. This year's study found that the hottest job markets are in mid-sized cities. The analysis assessed 300 cities and ranked their job market measuring factors including unemployment rates, job growth, labor force growth, and wage growth. The Kansas City Metro ranked eighth with Austin, Nashville, Raleigh, North Carolina, Salt Lake City, and Jacksonville, Florida, placing the top five. Kansas City ranked ahead of Boston and Tampa, Florida. Larger cities, including New York, taking 41st place, Chicago at 40th, and Los Angeles, 26th, placed lower on the list. According to the study, the best job markets are in cities with populations under 2 million and in states with low income taxes. The Kansas City Metro ranked 5th for labor force participation rate, 7th for change in labor force size, and 11th in unemployment rate. Kansas City previously placed 6th in 2021, 18th in 2020, and 24th in 2019. This article is titled WSJ Analysis, Kansas City Ranks in Top 10 Best Job Markets by the Community Voice Staff, April 27, 2022. The next article is titled New Center at Tufts University Focuses on Racial Disparities in Maternal Health. Written by Angela Jones, April 11, 2022. April 11 to 17 is Black Maternal Health Week, a campaign founded by the Black Mamas Matter Alliance to create awareness and inspire activism around issues related to maternal health and reproductive justice for Black mothers. These issues are more important than ever as black women continue to die at disproportionate rates during childbirth. Now, Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts, has launched a pioneering new initiative dedicated to helping find solutions that lead to positive outcomes for black mothers. The country is in crisis around maternal health, said Indidi Maka Amuta Onukaga. O-N-U-K-A-G-H-A, the Julia A. Okoro, O-K-O-R-O, Professor of Black Maternal Health at Tufts University School of Medicine. The majority of black maternal deaths are completely preventable. Amuta Onukaga, an Associate Professor and Assistant Dean of Diversity, Equity, and inclusion in the Department of Public Health and Community Medicine will lead the new Center for Black Maternal Health and Reproductive Justice, CBMHRJ, at Tufts University. The opportunity to create and launch a national center for black maternal health and reproductive justice 
at this critical time will not only honor the work around maternal health equity, but also position Tufts as a leader in this field, she says. The vision of the center is to protect the black birthing experience by advocating for quality, equitable, and respectful care in childbirth. The World Health Organization defines maternal death as the death of a woman while pregnant or within 42 days of termination of pregnancy, irrespective of the duration and the site of the pregnancy from any cause related to or aggravated by the pregnancy or its management, but not from accidental or incidental causes. And according to statistics from the CDC, the maternal morality rate for black women in 2020 was far greater than the overall figure. In 2020, the maternal morality rate was 23.8 deaths per 100,000 live births, but the rate for black women was 55.3 deaths per 100,000 live births. With support from the National Institutes of Health, the new center at Tufts will focus on research into the racial disparities that exist in maternal health. Researchers plan to engage the community to better understand black mothers' experience and what resources they are lacking. The hope is that their findings will help influence both local and national policy. The center will also work on training health professionals, including clinicians, social workers, public health workers, and nurses through the Maternal Outcomes for Translational Health Equity Research, M-O-T-H-E-R, or MOTHER, lab. Amuta Onukaga founded the program which trains students to become maternal health scholar activists. The center seeks to create a world where black women can safely and comfortably received equitable access to healthcare services without having to navigate discrimination in medical settings, says Helen Boucher, B-O-U-C-H-E-R, Dean and Interim of the School of Medicine and Tufts Medicine Chief Academic Officer. Not only is it critical societal need, but I am also proud that this mission is in complete alignment with the central themes of the School of Medicine's strategic plan, which includes a commitment to anti-racism, inclusion, health justice, and advancing the health of populations. The Biden administration also has the issue of black maternal health on its radar. This is a portion of the president's proclamation on black maternal health week. 2022, issued April 8th. The Biden-Harris administration remains fully committed to ameliorating these unacceptable disparities and building a health care system that is equitable and safe for Black families. The inequities that Black mothers face are not isolated incidents, but rather the byproduct of systemic racism in our society 
that has festered for far too long. To root it out and improve health outcomes, we must address a broad range of areas where unequal access persists along racial lines, including access to health care, adequate nutrition and housing, toxin-free environments, high-paying job sectors that provide paid leave, and workplaces free from harassment and discrimination. Amuta Onukaga hopes the impact of the work at Tufts will extend to black mothers far beyond Boston. The work that will come out of the center will shape federal health legislation and hopefully impact policy in a way that will save lives, she says. That's the biggest return on investment. This article is titled, New Center at Tufts University focuses on racial disparities in maternal health. Written by Angela Johnson, The Root, April 11, 2022. The next article is titled, America's Homeless Ranks, Graying as More Retire on Streets, by Anita Snow, S-N-O-W, Associated Press, April 10, 2022. Phoenix, Associated Press. Carla Finocchio's F-I-N-O-C-C-H-I-O slide into homelessness began when she split with her partner of 18 years and temporarily moved in with a cousin. The 55-year-old planned to use her $800 a month disability check to get an apartment after back surgery. But she soon was sleeping in her old pickup, protected by her German Shepherd mix, Scrappy, unable to afford housing in Phoenix, where median monthly rents soared 33% during the coronavirus pandemic to over $1,220 for a one-bedroom, according to apartmentlist.com. Finocchio is one face of America's graying homeless population, a rapidly expanding group of destitute and desperate people, 50 and older, suddenly without a permanent home after a job loss, divorce, family death, or health crisis during a pandemic. We're seeing a huge boom in senior homelessness, says Kendra Hendry. H-E-N-D-R-Y, a caseworker at Arizona's largest shelter, where older people make up about 30% of those staying there. These are not necessarily people who have mental illness or substance abuse problems. They are people being pushed into the streets by rising rents. Academics project their numbers will nearly triple over the next decade. Challenging policymakers from Los Angeles to New York to imagine new ideas for sheltering the last of the baby boomers as they get older, sicker, and less able to pay spiraling rents. Advocates say much more housing is needed, especially for extremely low-income people. Navigating sidewalks in wheelchairs and walkers, the aging homeless 
have medical ages greater than their years with mobility, cognitive, and chronic problems like diabetes. Many contracted COVID-19 or couldn't work because of pandemic restrictions. Cardelia Corley, C-O-R-L-E-Y, 65, ended up on the streets of Los Angeles County after the hours of her telemarketing job were cut. I've always worked, been successful, put my kid through college, the single mother said, and then all of a sudden, things went downhill. Corley traveled all night aboard buses and rode commuter trains to catch a catnap, and then I would go to Union Station downtown and wash up in the bathroom, said Corley. She recently moved into a small East Hollywood apartment with help from The People Concern, a Los Angeles nonprofit. A 2019 study of aging homeless people led by the University of Pennsylvania drew on 30 years of census data to project the U.S. population of people 65 and older experiencing homelessness will nearly triple from 40,000 to 106,000 by 2030, resulting in a public health crisis as their age-related medical problems multiply. Dr. Margot Cushell, K-U-S-H-E-L, a physician who directs the Center for Vulnerable Populations at the University of California, San Francisco, said her research in Oakland on how homelessness affects health has shown nearly half of the tens of thousands of older homeless people in the U.S. are on the streets for the first time. We are seeing that retirement is no longer the golden dream, said Cushell. A lot of the working poor are destined to retire onto the streets. That's especially true of the younger baby boomers now in their late 50s to late 60s, who don't have pensions or 401 accounts. About half of both women and men, ages 55 to 66, have no retirement savings, according to the census. Born between 1946 and 1964, baby boomers now number over 70 million, the census shows. With the oldest boomers in their mid-70s, all will hit age 65 by 2030. The aged homeless also tend to have smaller Social Security checks after years of working off the books. Donald Whitehead Jr., Executive Director of the Washington-based advocacy group National Coalition for the Homeless, said Black Latino and indigenous people who came of age in the 1980s amid recession and high unemployment rates are disproportionately represented among the homeless. Many nearing retirement never got well-paying jobs and didn't buy homes because of discriminatory real estate practices. So many of us didn't put money into retirement programs thinking that Social Security was going to take care of us, said Rudy Soliz, S-O-L-I-Z, 63, Operations Director for Justa Center, which offers meals, 
showers, a mail drop, and other services to the aged homeless in Phoenix. The average monthly Social Security retirement payment as of December was 1658 Many older homeless people have much smaller checks because they worked fewer years or earned less than others. People 65 and over with limited resources and who didn't work enough to earn retirement benefits may be eligible for supplemental security income of $841 a month. Nestor Castro, 67, was luckier than many who lose permanent homes. Castro was in his late 50s, living in New York, when his mother died and he was hospitalized with bleeding ulcers, losing their apartment. He initially stayed with his sister in Boston, then for more than three years at a YMCA in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Just before last Christmas, Castro got a permanent subsidized apartment through Hearth, Inc., a Boston nonprofit dedicated to ending homelessness among older adults. Residents pay 30% of their income to stay in one of Hearth's 228 units. Castro pays with part of his Social Security check and a part-time job. He also volunteers at a food pantry and a nonprofit that assists people with housing. Housing is a big problem around here because they're building luxury apartments that no one can afford. He said, a place down the street is $3,068 a month for a studio. Janie Har, H-A-R, in Marin County, California, and Christopher Weber in Los Angeles contributed to this report. This article is titled, America's Homeless Ranks Graying as More Retire on the Streets, by Anita Snow. Associated Press, April 10, 2022. The next article is titled, KC Sigmas Help Expose Students to Legacy of Fellow Sigma, George Washington Carver. Written by Jaslyn Johnson, The Community Voice, April 29, 2022. Students at Kansas City's Hope Leadership Academy sat on benches at the George Washington Carver National Monument, surrounding a statue of Carver, as they listened in awe to a recording of the great scientist giving a commencement address at Selma University in 1942. With this equipment, they all began, so start from the top and say, I can, said Carver, reciting a poem by Edgar guest called equipment. The message was just part of what the fourth grade students learned during the day-long trip to the monument in Diamond, Missouri, where Carver was born. The site, just two hours south of Kansas City, is where Carver was born as a slave in 1865. The trip is one of two to the monument site each year sponsored by members of Kansas City's Alpha Delta Sigma chapter of Phi Beta Sigma fraternity. For four years, brothers in the chapter have partnered with the National Park Trust 
to fund field trips for students in schools in Kansas City's urban core. We want to make sure our young people can foster the same ideas as Carver and know they could be scientists too, said Eric Wells, W-E-L-L-S, one of the event coordinators. We want them to think outside the box and take them outside the city. We try to give them the opportunity to learn even more. You're only going to get so much in school, but it's up to you to take it a little further. Carver, who was a Phi Beta Sigma, was known as the Peanut Man. He was a renowned agricultural scientist and educator. The monument site was the farm of slave owners Moses and Susan Carver. When Carver was an infant, he was kidnapped by bandits. When he was eventually returned, his mother was never heard from again. From the time he was a young boy, Carver spent a lot of time in the woods, collecting and observing plants. Later, he moved to Minneapolis, Kansas, where he graduated high school before earning a college degree and eventually a master's degree in agricultural science from Iowa State University. He experimented with seeds, soil, and grains and developed fertilizers to produce more food and better crops for farmers. As a result, he created hundreds of products using peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans. Carver went on to teach and conduct research at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama for decades. The George Washington Carver National Monument was established in 1943, soon after Carver's death at 78 years old. It was the first monument in America dedicated to an African American. At the monument, students from Hope Leadership Academy were able to visit Carver's birth site, conduct science experiments with peanuts, and walk the one-mile trail in the same woods Carver explored as a child. I learned that George Washington Carver had to walk eight miles to go to school. Hope Leadership Academy student Israel Lomax, L-O-M-A-X, told the park ranger. In May, the Sigmas will take the KIPP Endeavor Academy students on a field trip to the monument. Just know we're giving students the ultimate experience, Wells said. We're giving them the blue carpet experience, a reference to Sigma's color. Because we want to impact kids and let them know they mean something. We want them to be successful. This article was titled, KC Sigmas Help Expose Students to Legacy of Fellow Sigma George Washington Carver by Jaslyn Johnson, The Community Voice, April 29, 2022. The next article is titled, The Evolution of Michael Jordan by Noah A. McGee, The Root, April 25, 2022. Air Jordan, His Airness, M.J., The Goat. Whatever name you know him by, Michael Jordan is one of the best players in the history of basketball and is considered by many, including me, to be the greatest basketball player of all time. His play on the courts was jaw-dropping and his impact off the courts was revolutionary in the business world. Much of his life was covered in the 10-part 2020 documentary, The Last Dance, but there's always more to tell. Here is the evolution of Michael Jordan. Before Michael Jordan was dominating the NBA, he was cut from the varsity team at Laney 
High School in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1979. But during his final two years in high school, he was selected to the McDonald's All-American team and accepted a scholarship to the University of North Carolina. While MJ was not the star of this team, that honor belonged to James Worthy. He did hit the shot during the 1982 NCAA National Championship game against the Georgetown Hoyas, and that officially put Jordan on the national map. After three years in college, Jordan took his talents to the NBA, where he was part of a legendary 1985 NBA draft class. He was taken third overall to the Chicago Bulls. Other Hall of Famers in the class included Hakeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, and John Stockton. Jordan won Rookie of the Year. The Birth of Air Jordan Jordan sat out most of his sophomore season due to breaking his foot and missed 61 games, but returned in time for the end of the season and the 1986 NBA playoffs. In the first round, they played the Boston Celtics, and in Game 2, Jordan scored an NBA playoff record of 63 points. His airness had officially arrived. During the 1988 slam dunk competition in Chicago, Jordan and Dominique Wilkins put on a dunk show for the ages. Debuting the iconic Jordan 3, MJ took his second consecutive dunk contest win, and one night later, he won All-Star Game MVP. Jordan just didn't come into the league and start winning chips left and right. He had to go through the Bulls' Eastern Conference rival, Detroit Pistons. They faced each other in three state Eastern Conference Finals from 1989 to 1991. The Pistons enforced their Jordan rules, and the Bulls were not able to overcome them until 1991. Jordan's first championship came against the Magic Johnson and the Los Angeles Lakers, the team of the 80s. It was a marquee matchup, but the Bulls made easy work of them in five games, and Jordan won his first championship. After repeating as world champs in the 1992 NBA Finals, Michael Jordan and his teammate, Scottie Pippen, joined the 1992 Olympic basketball team in what was dubbed the Dream Team. They cruised to the gold medal in Barcelona and won an average margin of 44 points. The Bulls became the first team in NBA history to three-peat, beating Charles Barkley and the Phoenix Suns in six games in the 1993 NBA Finals, giving Jordan his third consecutive Finals MVP. Before the 1993-1994 NBA season, Jordan announced his retirement in a press conference filled with his teammates, coaches, and NBA commissioner, David Stern. Jordan signed to play baseball for the Chicago White Sox and played double-A for the Birmingham Barons, the White Sox minor league team. Jordan announced that he would be returning to the Bulls in a two-word fax, I'm back. After being eliminated from the second round of the 1995 NBA playoffs to Shaquille O'Neal and the young Orlando Magic, Jordan and the Bulls came back with a vengeance during the 1995-1996 season, winning a then-NBA record 72 regular season games. 
They won the 1996 finals against the Seattle Supersonics on Father's Day, giving Jordan his fourth championship and fourth finals MVP. Jordan, alongside Bugs Bunny and the rest of the Looney Tunes, starred in the 1996 movie Space Jam. Despite the mixed reviews at the time, the movie is now considered a classic, one of the best sports movies of all time. In Game 5 of the 1997 NBA Finals against the Utah Jazz, Jordan scored 33 points while being physically depleted. It will forever be known as the flu game. The Bulls ended up repeating as champions, giving Jordan his fifth ring and fifth finals MVP. Before the season, it was agreed between Bulls general manager Jerry Caruso and head coach Phil Jackson that Jackson would not return as coach after the 1997-1998 season, despite any success they had. Jordan said he would not play for any other coach but Jackson. This set the stage for the last dance. In his last game with the Bulls, Jordan hit a title-winning jumper in the 1998 NBA Finals, cementing the Bulls' sixth championship and second three-peat. Jordan collected his record sixth finals MVP. In the second retirement in January 1999, Jordan says he is mentally exhausted and retires from the NBA a second time before the lockout-shortened 1999 NBA season. Jordan then became a part owner and team president of the Washington Wizard, where he famously selected Kwame Brown with the number one overall pick in the 2001 NBA draft. He couldn't help himself and came back out of retirement again to suit up for the Wizards in the 2001-2002 NBA season. He played 60 games. After his second year with the Washington Wizards, Jordan decided to retire for the third time in 2003, and this time he stayed retired for good. After being fired from his role as team president with the Wizards, he bought a minority stake with the then Charlotte Bobcats from BET founder Robert Johnson in 2006. In 2010, he bought majority ownership of the team, now known as the Charlotte Hornets, for $275 million. He became the first former NBA player to be a majority owner. This article is titled, The Evolution of Michael Jordan, by Noah A. McGee, The Root, April 25th, 2022. The next article is titled, These Black Dads Are Blowing Up on TikTok. Here's the heartwarming story about their journey to fatherhood. By Kwai Mawai, K-U-I-M-W-A-I, April 1st, 2022. When viral TikTok dads, Terrell and Jarius Joseph, got together in college, they quickly talked about having kids together. It was Terrell's dream, as he comes from a big family and always had this desire to be a father. Jarius needed more convincing, but he joined Terrell's baby bandwagon, and the young couple started to have conversations about how they would want to pursue fatherhood. I wasn't going to let my sexuality stop me from becoming a dad, Terrell told Blavity News and it was really important to me. Talking to Jarius and Terrell, as I did via Zoom, 
It is quickly evident that they are both instinctively paternal, giving, and natural guides. They seemed settled into those characteristics, as if they've nurtured them for a while. So I'm not surprised when the married parents of two tell me their fatherhood journey dates back to their early 20s. Terrell and Jarius are from Louisiana, a state not exactly known for its progressive views on parenthood. Terrell tells me that it took a lot of research to figure out how to have a child as a young person in a same-sex partnership. And there wasn't a community of black LGBTQIA plus parents they could turn to for advice. It was very taboo, he explains. We couldn't get a lot of information. Everything we did, we found out on our own. Their research led Terrell and Jarius to surrogacy agencies in Mexico that the couple reached out to learn more about the surrogacy process and what was required of them before embarking on it. As they got closer and closer to becoming dads, Terrell recounts that Jarius had a few stipulations before they took the plunge. Jarius said, Well, we're going to have to graduate first and get a house, Terrell said. We graduated and had a house by May 2015, and we were pregnant by October 2015. The future husbands were overjoyed. They got pregnant on their first try with surrogacy, and it felt like everything was falling into place. Terrell and Jarius were well on their way to having their dream family, but unfortunately, their dream did not come to fruition. We had a miscarriage, Terrell said. It was a very difficult time. We didn't have a support system outside each other to lean on, and we were so young. It was a trying time for the couple, to say the least. Not only were they blindsided by an unimaginable loss, but they were also confronted with how the world would devalue their fatherhood. We quickly realized at the hospital, while we were going through the miscarriage, that it wasn't a lot of emphasis placed on us as fathers. I couldn't determine whether it was the lack of care because we were fathers or because we're gay dads. We didn't feel supported at all by my hospital staff. We weren't really acknowledged, and that was a difficult pill for us to swallow, Terrell said. I see Jarius reach for his hand and the two exchange a tender look. For the first time in their relationship, Terrell and Jarius found themselves on different pages. Terrell remembers feeling like he didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and he was consumed with mourning their loss. On the other hand, Jarius had a hard time letting go of the excitement and anticipation they felt, and was hyper-focused on getting it back. Terrell felt like he was just trying to replace one situation with another, and their relationship was tested. I was really concerned with how do we get that feeling back, Jarius said. I felt like we just needed to hurry up and pick up the pieces so we could move on and get back to that feeling. For Terrell, the experience has made their relationship a lot stronger. Eventually, we just relied on each other because we didn't have much of, of anyone around us, he said. They also learned a lot about how they wanted to share their journey to fatherhood on social media. During their first pregnancy, Terrell and Jarius shared every little detail on social media. It was more of an outlet for us, Terrell explained, a tool to be able to share our experience. We were even really honest about genetically who that child was. 
Because of their openness, the couple felt they had to address the miscarriage on social media, which was difficult. Not everyone checks every post that you do at that time, so we were constantly getting asked what was going on about the baby, Terrell said. It was always just a painful moment for us to kind of be on social media. So they took a much needed break and allowed themselves to heal as both individuals and as a couple. And when they got pregnant again, they decided to approach their social media use much differently. We didn't tell anyone we were pregnant with Ashton and Aria, Jarius said, which was such a big thing. It was kind of our return to social media. Their return to social media has truly taken off. Since sharing their family life with Ashton and Aria, who are now four years old, the Josephs have garnered millions of followers across social media platforms and have gone viral on more than one occasion. Their content, which features the Josephs loving on each other and their adorable toddlers, is actively redefining black gay fatherhood. And Terrell and Jarius are committed to challenging the norm of what fatherhood looks like. You don't see a lot of African-American fathers of the same sex in the media, Terrell said. You typically see Caucasian men together, but you never see any other ethnicities representing same-sex couples. We're rooted in what we do, Terrell continued. It's all about just changing the narrative around black fatherhood and same-sex parenting. Some of the Joseph's most popular content captures Jarius doing Aria's hair. It's a sweet daddy-daughter moment Aria will surely remember for the rest of her life. And Jarius, who Terrell describes as a girl dad, is proud to show that he can lay her edges and slick her ponytail as well as any maternal figure. We had conversations about what type of parents we wanted to be. And in those discussions, we thought about the kind of backlash we would get, Terrell said. We knew people who questioned how we would be able to take care of a girl because we're not women. That inspired Jarius to go harder and learn different hairstyles and hair care so their baby girl would never feel like she was missing out on having a mom. The Josephs have learned a lot about black gay fatherhood in their journey thus far, and they want BIPOC, same-sex couples, pursuing parenthood to stay strong and true to themselves. You have to develop a thicker skin, Terrell said candidly. You're not going to be accepted by everyone at this current time, but we hope down the line this changes. In the meantime, don't ever let anyone tell you that you can't be a parent based on your sexuality. Jarius adds, be all in with parenting and be who you are as a parent, despite the words or comments that could potentially be sent to you. Just know that you have a hand in shaping what the next generation is going to look like. Take it seriously, because it's a beautiful thing. This article is titled, These Black Dads Are Blowing Up on TikTok. Here's the heartwarming story about their journey to fatherhood. By Kui Mawai, Blavity News, April 1st, 2022. Next, another article from the Community Voice titled, Kansas City ranks worst city for dating, Wichita right behind, by Jaslyn Johnson, The Community Voice, April 25, 2022. How many times have you been on a first date 
and found yourself unimpressed by the end of it. Maybe you've stopped going on dates because the outcome is just so disappointing or nothing ever comes out of it. Well, you're definitely not alone in Kansas City, which recently ranked as the worst city for dating. And our sister city, Wichita, was right behind them. They were recently ranked as the two worst places for dating in America. The study conducted by Sperling's Best Places is based on criteria, including the percentage of singles, 18 to 24, population density, and dating venues per capita, such as bowling alleys, bars, and coffee shops. The study includes 80 metro areas across the country, with the top city earning the name the dating capital of the U.S. Kansas City ranked last with Austin, Texas, Colorado Springs, Colorado, and San Diego, California ranking the best. Factors that led to Kansas City's low score was the low percentage of 18 to 24-year-olds, which was 8.6%, and its low venue index. It also ranked on the low end for expenditures on flowers, jewelry, and other gifts. Those that ranked highest had a high amount of online daters, largest number of coffee shops, and a high amount of lingerie shops per capita. We've received feedback from some of the lowest-ranking cities, and it appears our findings are on track, noted Sperling. In these cities, there are relatively few young singles, and the towns are so spread out, it can be difficult for them to find each other. Some are using this study as a call to action to provide places where people can hang out and get together. We're asking singles in Kansas City and Wichita about their experiences. Fill out this survey to have your experience included. HTTP semicolon backslash backslash bit dot ly slash 3x capital QIPBL. We've asked some young single people in Kansas City about their dating experiences to see if they agree with the results of this study. Geneva O, a.k.a. Mizno Meals, 38, and co-host of Two Broke, H-O-E-Z, The Voice. Kansas City is ranked worst for dating. Is that your experience, Mizno? Absolutely. I've never been in a committed relationship, even though I'm social and meet plenty of people. But people tend to stay in their own areas of town. We don't like to travel more than 20 minutes to get somewhere. With that being said, it makes the degrees of separation small. When you date someone, there's not much privacy. You probably know some of the same people and maybe even have dated their relatives in the past. The Voice What would you change about Casey's dating scene to be more successful? Mizno I wish there were singles events, speed dating, and matchmakers here. The Voice. Pet peeves or biggest complaint you have going on dates with people in KC. Mizno. My dating pet peeve would be people who should not be dating at all. Stinking up the dating pool like the homeless, unemployed, multiple co-parents, unborn children on the way, and people looking for help. 
not love. The Voice. Success with dating apps or stay away from them? Mizno. I stay away from dating apps. I have met people, but it seems to be used for hookups, not anything real. I haven't had any good experiences. Alan S. 36. The Voice. KC is ranked worst for dating. What is your experience? Alan. Dating here, I used to come to the conclusion that something is wrong with me. But as I started working on myself and making myself better, I thought it wasn't me. It was the fact that I feel a lot of women are intimidated by a man of value. The Voice. Success with dating apps or stay away from them. Alan. I used to, but after realizing it doesn't really work for men, it works more in the favor for women. Dating apps and social media apps usually don't work because it's based on looks and some fairy tale story that you fabricate that catches the eye of the women. I've been successful on all the apps, but when I meet the women, I haven't had a relationship that lasted more than three months. The Voice. What would you change about Casey's dating scene to be more successful? Alan. If women could start being women, number one, and instead of trying to be the controlling one, stop bringing their past relationships into the new relationship. Callie, C, 24. The Voice. Casey is ranked worst for dating. Is that your experience? Callie, I am a relationship type of girl and had been in a long-term relationship for the majority of my late teens, early 20s. I am newly single, and honestly, dating sucks. I initially got back on the dating scene with the intentions of having fun and being open-minded. I don't want anything too serious right now, but even dating for fun can be challenging because people are not straightforward and want to waste your time. They either ask you out on a date and fall through, or don't respect my time once we're on the date, and it is a big turnoff. The Voice. Success with dating apps or stay away from them. Callie. No, I'm not a big dating app person. Men on dating apps for me is a red flag, lol. I always see them as wanting one thing. I like to be approached in person to feel out your vibe. The Voice. What would you change about Casey's dating scene to be more successful? Callie. Honestly, I feel a lot of people in KC are all about image. People don't express themselves authentically and are always worried about what the next person may think. Kansas City would be a better dating area if people were original and let their guard down a little. Jocelyn W. 24. The Voice. KC is ranked worst for dating. Is that your experience? Jocelyn, yes, absolutely. Zero out of ten. The Voice, pet peeves or biggest complaint you have going on dates with people in KC. Jocelyn, I think my biggest complaint with dating people in KC is when they're not being authentic and honest. It's hard to find someone who isn't faking who they are in the beginning. Like, if you're a bum, show that. If you're a liar, show that. If you've got a baby on the way, say that. Don't give a fake facade to try and impress me. Then three months in, show the real you. Stand firm in your truth. The Voice. Anything you would change about the KC dating scene? Jocelyn. It's not much you can change about people not being themselves. But I think everyone should be okay with who they are as a person. And if there's something you don't like, fix it. Kevin G. 26. 
The Voice. KC is ranked worst for dating. Is that your experience? Kevin. Most definitely. Most of the women I have tried to date only want a free meal or money. The Voice. Pet peeves or biggest complaint you have going on dates with people in KC. Kevin. My biggest pet peeve on dates is that they're on their phone most of the date. The Voice. Anything you would like to change about the KC dating scene? Kevin. The mentality of my generation has to change from all about money to trying to get to know people and understanding. Worst cities for dating. 1. Kansas City, Missouri. 2. Wichita, Kansas. 3. Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota. 4. Detroit, Michigan. 5. Louisville, Kentucky. 6. Greensboro, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 7. Atlanta, Georgia. 8. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 9. Houston, Texas. And 10. Charlotte, North Carolina. This article is titled, Kansas City Ranks Worst City for Dating, Wichita Right Behind, by Jaslyn Johnson, The Community Voice, April 25, 2022. The next article is titled, The Legend of O.T. Jackson and the Black Ghost Town of Deerfield, Colorado, written by Bilal G. Morris, B-I-L-A-L, News 1, April 11, 2022. A name can be so much more than just an identity. Sometimes it can be a calling, or in a way, even a compass guiding you towards the direction of how you will leave your mark in this world. For Oliver Toussaint Jackson, that mark was to build a lasting legacy for Black people in America. The story of Oliver Toussaint and Colorado's historic all-Black settlement of Deerfield is very interesting, but this is a Black folklore, and our job is to dig a little deeper to find the story within the story that every great masterpiece encompasses. This is the legendary tale of O.T. Jackson and the Colorado Black Ghost Town of Deerfield. O.T. Jackson was born in Oxford, Ohio in 1862. His parents, Hezekiah and Virginia Caroline Jackson, were former slaves from Virginia who managed to escape the clutches of the Jim Crow South. Although not much is known about O.T.'s parents, who they named their son after says everything you need to know about them. O.T. was named after the great Haitian general, François-Dominique Toussaint Louverture. Louverture was one of the most prominent and important leaders of the Haitian Revolution in 1791. The former slave helped lead the Haitian enslaved majority in rebel victories over the planter class and thousands of invading French troops. He was also able, through diplomacy, to keep Spain and England from invading the already ravished nation. Louverture was eventually able to conquer the Spanish side of Hispaniola, uniting the entire island 
and naming himself the governor, creating the world's first sovereign black state. Little did O.T.'s parents know, but naming their son after the Haitian general would guide him for his entire being. Like Toussaint, O.T. Jackson was a trailblazer and a pioneer who wanted more for his people. He was also so much more, and as he grew in adulthood, so did his legend. In 1882, the 20-year-old Jackson moved to Cleveland, where he worked as a waiter and also wrote for the Cleveland Gazette, which was once one of the longest-running black papers in the United States. Even though his parents gave him a forever idol who lived within his name, Jackson yearned to find his own insert one Booker T. Washington. Washington had just founded the famous Tuskegee Institute, and his teachings were very intriguing to Jackson, but polarizing to some. In the late 19th century, Black America was at a crossroads intellectually. Some Blacks believed and followed the teachings of W.E.B. Du Bois, and others followed Booker T. Washington. Both were two of the most influential Black men in American history. They each wanted and worked for civil rights for Blacks in America, but had two totally different approaches, similar to Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Washington promoted self-help and racial solidarity. He believed if Blacks looked to elevate themselves, whites would have no choice but to accept and respect them. Du Bois, on the other hand, advocated for political action and social change. He believed Washington's strategy would only make white oppression worse. But O.T. Jackson saw things more like Booker T. Washington. He saw true freedom in wealth building and ownership. This ends the first part of the article titled, The Legend of O.T. Jackson, and the Black Ghost Town of Deerfield, Colorado, written by Bilal Morris, News 1, April 11th, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Onwick. Thanks for joining me.